It's a day of reckoning. For everyone. And we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. And the hits keep on coming as we have another Oscar Sprint profile to uh, dive deep into today. Another contender for this year's prolonged, elongated, never-ending movie year of 2020-2021. This one is actually something we have been anticipating for quite some time. If you've uh, been a long-time listener of MMO, you'll know we've been excited to review Promising Young Woman since we first saw the initial trailers with the Toxic by Britney Spears being played through the violin strings over a year ago, but we finally got our hands on it. We have taken it in. We are ready to go all through it today. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. And when you said the hits keep on coming right at the top there, Mm -hmm. I thought you were saying to your movie year and your movie watching (laughs) expectations because I'm really shocked today. I'm shocked that you don't love this movie as much as I do. Yeah. And I just I'm 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 bracing for impact right now because this reminds me of of reviews we've done in the past that rhyme with Schmerischmite. <laughs> anyway, fucking dad jokes came immediately. And right uh, here's the, the dad joke rant that I have to go on because I think in comedy, just in general, maybe today's the perfect episode for it, Mike. Mm-hmm. We just give up and just go full dad joke because I know we're, you know, we're, we're, we're satirists ourselves and we're, you know, coming up with all these different angles on comedy and in and, and our Oscar episodes here. But I think it's just rhyming words together. And Paris Hilton lyrics, and, and that should we really putting, should just we should just pivot and make this into a deep dive into the Paris Hilton uh, song catalog. I think instead of right. reviewing this movie at all, yeah, and it's starting off words with S C M H, right, You know, just that, that's our comedy. We should just stay in that lane from forevermore and, and not try to venture elsewhere. Yeah. And now that we've totally turned off everyone listening to us. <laughs> We're going deep into Promising Young Woman today. It is a focus features movie written and directed by Emerald Fennell and stars Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, Laverne Cox, Alison Brie, and really just a whole loaded cast of of big names and people we recognize. Uh, Before we dive deep into the scores and the plot premise and all that, we will remind you that an Oscar sprint profile is two reviews for the price of one. So if you have not seen Promising Young Woman yet, it is available now on premium VOD. It's $20 to rent it. Uh, the first half of this review will be a non-spoiler review, so if you've not seen the movie yet, you're not going to have it ruined for you. We're going to go through kind of the Oscar lens where we think it stacks up. You'll have a spoiler warning in the middle of the episode. All the ins and outs of the plots and what Mike and I think about that will be all in the second half, so you're in safe space here if you've not seen the movie yet. If you want to hear our thoughts about the plots, that's coming in the second half of this review in the spoiler-filled section. But Michael, let's talk about some scores that this movie's been getting out the gate. Yeah, 72 Metascore, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes on 20, 271 reviews as of this morning, Michael, Saturday morning. And uh, those are high scores from yeah. the critics. Yeah, uh, very in terms high. Of the, in terms of the audiences, it's a 7.5 out of 10 on 10K votes uh, on, on IMDb. That has gone up. It was like a 7.2 a couple days wow. ago. I had, to, I had to update this. And uh, same for the Rotten Tomato audience score. That is an, at an 89% up from... Uh, where it was, but only few uh, people have rated it. 305 audience ratings. ratings. Do you know why that is, Rotten Tomato? I know they're still struggling with their, like, what's a verified audience score because they're still having problems with review bombings and people Hmm. just going to the site and, like, trying to denigrate minority movies and stuff like that. So they're trying to really get a handle on what's a certified or an authentic audience review score. So I, I think that has something to do with it, but I'm not entirely sure. 
that makes some sense. So real so what's happening out there is trolls are coming up with all these fake names. Yes. Making Rotten Tomatoes accounts. Right. And then review bombing. Can you imagine having that sort of time on your hands? <laughs> but yes, that's that's what I've seen, at least on uh, on various sections of film Twitter. Oh my god. Because like, that's the only explanation. I can't think of anything else. Like why would they why would they not trust thousands of people? But maybe right. they, maybe they just understand how the review bombing strategies work. And oh my god, they're like, maybe we know where should, this is going. <laughs> maybe somebody should do that in Saudi Arabia, Arabia, and have the same filters that Rotten Tomatoes has. Anyway, Mike, not all of you hated Captain Marvel this much. We know what's going on here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, plot premise for Promising Young Woman reads as such. We have a young woman traumatized by a tragic event in her past seeks out vengeance against those who crossed her path. Michael, Mm -hmm. what do you think of that? Uh, I think that's a pretty effective plot premise. It's pretty succinct. It's pretty, I'd say spot on to what we got here. I, I am very curious to hear how you handled your expectations going in for this. And I'm very curious to explain how mine played a role in what's coming out of my mouth later in this episode. So I am the mental gymnast. I play mental gymnastics uh, before every movie that I know I want to like. And I get my expectations down low. So then when I see the movie, I can be free. I could just be free to Mm -hmm. love the movie. Mm -hmm. I can dance in the field. (laughs) I can skip in the meadow and i don't need and you we can't even see movies together anymore so i don't have you like that wouldn't work that wouldn't happen (laughs) i don't even have that anymore like it's it's not even that fear where you could squish a movie you know sitting next to me right now so basically i you know i'm on the record of ranting about how much i've liked this movie and how much i think it works uh in the last episode the last Oscar race checkpoint there i thought it really does work as a satire so the big question i had going into this was you know were you going to jump on the bandwagon with me were you going to you know and join me on the hype train here and was this going to you know was yeah. this going to be the movie of the year for us because i had it on a level similar to my other top films of the year and i did i wondered where it would wind up so how did you manage expectations I wish I did what you I should have learned from you from Mank, to be honest with you, because when you you talking, uh, putting the warning signs about how Mank may not be what everyone thinks it's going to be was kind of the first tempering of expectations I had for that. And I think that helped, honestly, because I was so gung ho about Mank. And then when it came out and it wasn't this traditional Fincher type film, I at least had that warning going in. And I knew my expectations were getting a little out of control for Promising Young Women. And they did. I mean, you know, this movie to me, to kind of tease my review, uh, yeah. Eric Weber was actually the first one who I think uh, had it, at least for my interpretation of it, uh, for how I digested this movie. This movie right. is good. It's a very well-made movie that's technically superb. I have a lot of issues with the plot and contrivances, mm-hmm. and I am such a plot junkie. I will. I just love a good story, and I, I, I nitpick too much, probably, for my own good, but it just left me with a sour taste in my mouth where I'm disappointed that I can't say it's, you know, an A minus or one of the best of the year. And I really wanted to, and that all has to do with my expectations. Maybe I should just start for any niche picture. I just got to start pouring cold water on myself and being, I try to go in with no expectations, but it doesn't work. And usually this is when I end up disappointed. 
However, if the movie does, you know, hit the right spot with with any viewer, you know, that could be the greatest moment of movie watching euphoria there is right. when you actually see a movie that exceeds right. your high expectations. I mean, that's happened to us before with some some big movies of the last few years, some big movies that we hyped up doing an entire rewatch series yeah, for in some for sure. cases. So we have had that joy on this podcast. Uh, unfortunately, this was. I mean, I, I think there's a measure of subjectivity to it, but I do also think, like, when we've been doing this for so long, I mean, this is year four now, where mm-hmm. we've been reviewing movies like crazy after being addicted to them our whole lives and and trained, you know, trained in them in our cases, educations, uh, educationally and whatnot. I mean, you and I have a degree of, uh, you know, objectivity, but that doesn't exist also, right? So again, I'm talking out of both sides of my <laughs> mouth here. Let's be honest. You're subjective, but you're also you're also a pro, and and we know each other's taste. This movie should have been something where I, I I really should have seen the warning signs for you better. And I almost feel like that older brother here, and I am an older <laughs> brother of five boys, and you're a younger brother of one yes. Dishmave. Right. So I sh- I feel a little bit responsible for not warning you of this one as I should have, perhaps, and maybe you know because I, I I recognize it now. Like right. Some of these peccadillos or peccadillos you always have and, in in movies, and we see that similarly because when anything goes wrong in my life anymore, I blame you anyway. So this That's is right. your That's fault. Right. This lays it. Your, no, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're. You know, there is obviously subjectivity that you were very high on this. I want so badly to be higher on this than I am. I'm. Yeah. Hoping that you you can uh, come bring me around somewhat during this review has been known to happen a couple times uh, with each of us. We kind of talk each other up a point or down a point, so we'll see what happens. But let's uh, let's start off talking about the Oscars lens and working it in throughout the, our review here. Uh, in terms mm-hmm. of our typical general thoughts section here in non spoilers, we have. Scott Feinberg's latest Feinberg forecast at The Hollywood Reporter. He is the highest on Promising Young Woman in the biggest categories. It sits right now third in picture and director and second in original screenplay on Feinberg's forecast. As for the uh, rest of the punditry, uh, Clayton Davis at Variety's Awards Circuit. You know, he's going to be higher on Carrie Mulligan. We'll talk about her in a few minutes. But uh, Clayton and most of the punditry in those three categories, and this is kind of our overall composition, direction, script thoughts segment here at the beginning of non-spoilers. But in those three categories, Scott is definitely well higher than everybody else. Everybody seems to have original screenplay at the end of their fives. Everybody seems to have best picture at seven, eight, nine, ten. Mm-hmm. You know, promising young woman kind of ranks there, and otherwise, you know, best director. I think Scott's a bit of an outlier right now on the Hollywood Reporter because she is like ninth or tenth for most people in director. So she's she's got a ways to go, a ways to travel in director there. And we've seen just historically. I mean, now Scott's clued in. We talk about this every time we we bring up yes. the Feinberg forecast. He's he's basically reporting on buzz he's heard firsthand, but. We've seen historically lately at the Oscars a new or relatively new director, writer director certainly, is going to get more credit in the original screenplay category than they will bursting through the best director category. So maybe there's some of that at play here too in everybody's thinking, but that's just a fact of the matter. Now, my take on this movie, regardless of our subjectivity and you and I's back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're going to have some epic Mike and Mike, you know, all the same shit. It's going to be dragged up again. Regardless of all that, Uh this film strikes me as something the Academy will like. Because I do think it's well paced, well composed. I do think all the 
production values are smooth. I do think the story, it could have a parade of sadness aspect to it, but instead there's a lot of safe harbors. Like this could have been Joker. This yeah. been, and Joker has a lot of goods to deliver also, but thematically everything, it's just soul crushing. And that was our biggest issue with it. This could have been Joker in the same way, but they avoided that and they give you a lot, especially in act two to kind of cling to it, Mike. I will say that I would be excited to see the Academy embrace this because I do think there's a lot of good, I guess, thematically with what's going on. Um, yeah. And it's a progressive film, certainly. And it's just a weird film. I mean, it's not yeah. something. I mean, I, I mean that in a, as a compliment. It's not something that the Academy historically would throw their support behind. So if we get to a point where the Academy is embracing this and pushing this forward and, and you hear a lot of Academy members campaigning for it, as has been the case, at least recently with people watching it, uh, I'd be happy with that. I would like that. I think that shows signs of progress, just in the same way, you know, I wasn't crazy about Parasite, but I like the idea of the Academy throwing their weight behind Parasite and opening their arms, and it shows the evolution of this new, widening, and more diverse Academy, I think. It's a direct mm -hmm. impact and a direct correlation, I would say. Now, looking at the Gold Derby stats for all three of those categories, I do think kind of the established pundit is kind of a little slower to come around to this film, which makes Scott Feinberg's praise for it all the more exciting right. from my point of view because, again, he's reporting from what he's hearing, but he's also, you know, he's a, he's a guy like any one of us. It, it matters what he thinks of the film, and he's got it really high in these major categories, and, you know, I, I do think it's because well-paced. I mean, it reminds me of Green Book's pacing. It reminds me of Parasite's pacing. For There's a lot of narrative momentum in this, that being said, you know, in talking about our issues and what we're going to have, I think this movie works better in terms of its thematic development than perhaps some of its uh, its tonal shifts in terms of some of its issues with realism and, and stylization yeah. and, you know, where it's going the symbolic route and where it's, you know, trying to keep you grounded and I, th I think we're going to get into some of that. And that's where I take some points off. You're going to take a lot of points off. Yeah. But <laughs> it, it, here's the thing. Like if the, if the style wins people over and in a year bereft of the big studio stuff where you don't have a lot of trial of Chicago sevens to cling to and typical safe picks to make, maybe a promising young woman is kind of pushed to the front of the line or at least pushed in front of the eyes of the established Academy for more of them to vote on. There's a lot of good, uh, technically. I mean, it's it's ultra stylized. It looks super polished. I could see people liking the performances. I could see people liking the direction. I mean, there's a, the the good certainly outweighs even the subjective bad in terms mm -hmm. of like how many of each are in each column. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying there, and it would not shock me to see this one in this type of year bring up multiple nominations. Whether I would personally do it or not is a different story. And I'll tell you another thing, another thing I'm very high on, just I know we're getting into production value soon anyway. I haven't right. seen a lot of love for this, for uh, cinematography or set design. I think both are immaculate. They're as good as I've seen in any live action film this year, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, we can we can jump ahead for a second and close with performances. I do think I do think the talking point is going to finish with uh, with the uh, original soundtrack. And we need an Oscar for original soundtrack after a movie like this, Michael. But yeah, I agree. 
I, I'm with you. I think people are sleeping on the cinematography, and that's why I feel like this is a polished, well-made film. This is Emerald Fennell conducting the orchestra. This is big budget goods delivered from all phases of the game. Like the film editing is crisp and clean, and it doesn't really draw attention to itself other than a few times on purpose. Otherwise, it really flows. And the the makeup and hairstyling, the costume design, those are probably the highest on people's punditry boards right now. Clayton Davis has those 7th and 11th. Uh, I don't see any production design anywhere, even though I agree with you. Which I makes no like sense to me. I mean, this is so stylized. It's it's like you're. This is at Astra in yeah. some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, I it's very it. beautiful to just look at. They look like paintings or portraits in some of these shots. So I don't. I will never understand. As as confused as the documentary feature branch branch gets us, I I will yeah. never understand cinematography and production design either. Uh, me too, because I, I get the costume design. I mean, she's wearing some outfits. In Which this I think movie, could be but... a huge hit for Halloween, too. That nurse outfit with the, oh, yeah. the crazy wig, yeah. It's going to be iconic at right. the end of the day. Agree. It's going to be iconic if this movie blows up the way I think it might, or at mm-hmm. least it has a chance to right now. But, yeah, I want more pr- credit to production design. I want more credit to uh, editing, and uh, you want more credit to cinematography. That just goes to show what we, uh, what we think of how well-made a movie right. this is. Finally... The original soundtrack, Mike, I thought the music in this movie, it it accomplished these two polar opposite things that I didn't think, or that I thought were polar opposites. It's like before when I said you could be partially objective. Yeah, here again, here it is again. The polar opposites of comedy and horror, because Mm. they're not polar opposites. You know this. (laughs) Jordan Peele said as much. And maybe that's why it works both ways. But I can shudder from one song in one scene because it makes me think of something so horrible and the lyrics are so asinine or the lyrics are so effed up and it's obviously hitting you over the head with a metaphor, but then that's a meta joke. Or I can laugh out loud because the song is so goddamn funny before I think about the lyrics and then again I'm shuddering. Yeah, there's been a couple movies in the last few years in which the soundtrack has been so effective and so apart. Not the score, necessarily. Although the score, right. I think, in this is is awesome, too. But the yes, soundtrack, yes. songs that are already made that were just incorporated as part of this movie, uh, that stick out and really kind of play as their own character for their own moments. And I think this is one of them. I mean, this goes right alongside, ironically, because Bo Burnham's in this as well. But with 8th Grade, I thought they did a fantastic job of that, using the Enya mm-hmm. song and a couple other songs they use. Jordan Peele and Us, we talk about and have raved about a bunch. And Get Out, we talk about a use of one song in particular in there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I would love, I think you hit on something I didn't even know I wanted. I would love an original soundtrack or a, just a movie soundtrack category at the Oscars. I think that'd be fascinating to watch movie critics <laughs> have to sort yeah. through the best soundtrack, the best compilation of music for its movie. But regardless, yes, m- already previously recorded songs are used exceptionally well by Emerald Fennell in this. And there are a couple original songs written for this movie that are showing up on the original song list. Unfortunately, there's like three or four of them, Mike. Well, I have three written down. Uh-oh by Sin, Cynthia and the Bosni. Uh, we have Come and Play With Me by Death by Romy. And Last Laugh by Fletcher, Fletcher, Mike. Eric Anderson and Clayton Davis have mentioned those on their uh, awards uh, lists there. And I, I, I think it's kind of suffering from the fact that there's three songs and maybe they don't know what to pick right now if this movie does get coattails at the end of the day for nominations and maybe they galvanize around one of those songs 
then maybe we're talking because I do think that original song category is looking for some heat. That, that that was a category we talked about a lot of songs moving out of a lot of the projected Oscar conversation songs of the last seven months. The pandemic moved those out from No Time to Die to, to uh, you know, I mean, just name the movie In the Heights. Right. A lot of songs moved out of that category. And that's not to say we don't still have some good ones, but it is to say that Husavik is the best song. Right <laughs> She's going to say we're from... on the verge of Will Ferrell winning best original song here. So it is. <laughs> and it, it also the song from another round the end of another round i've been listening to that like a hundred times a day on spotify i don't care when anybody says that no i obviously i understand that those songs probably don't get nominated they're in people's tens maybe not fives and these these are modern songs too of course so the academy's been a little hesitant to vote songs like this in to vote the song from tenant in but i feel cooler when i listen to them Agreed. and therefore i want that bump to my ego which is what a lot of this episode's doing. But I want that bump to my ego, and I want them to pick one of these songs. That Charlie XCX song, I know it's not an original <laughs> at all, but the one that this movie starts yeah. with, the, I was busy uh, thinking. That hilarious. song slaps. That is song, <laughs> I listened to that song, I think, 20 times between yesterday and today, having watched this movie. And we've also danced the same way in khakis, how many times? <laughs> but innocently, just happy. Again, remember I made the metaphor of frolicking in the meadow? You know, yes. the, 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 this this has bad con- connotations for khaki dancing in this movie, so I'm a little upset, but no, I'm kidding. Obviously, uh, we're going to get into it. Mike, let's close with performances before we finish the Oscar lens. Carrie Mulligan, you and I are, have different views on Carrie Mulligan here, but in terms of the punditry, uh, they're pretty high on her, though. Yeah, people are extremely high on Carrie Mulligan, and she almost is, I think, a given right now in terms of landing one of those five Oscar slots uh, on Academy Awards Sunday. Variety, Clayton Davis has her sitting number one right now. Awards Radar as well has her number one. Feinberg has her second in the Feinberg forecast. Awards Watch, she is third. The Gold Derby Experts Breakdown, 23 of 27 have her in the top five field, with only one of them thus far having her at number one. Next Best Picture, she sits at fourth in their cumulative rankings look uh, my girl i was watching this with has said like the point one of the points she got hung up with was it seems like carrie mulligan just was doing too much and i saw some scenes of overacting that i can't get past and to me it all i have such a struggle with this it's like if this movie isn't actually happening, which I'll expand more on in spoilers. I think the moments of overacting I saw make a lot more sense, but if this is all happening in real time, I I, I don't mean to say she was overacting, because what the hell do I know, but it just seemed like it was coming off as somebody who was trying to play a character rather than somebody who was playing a character, and I wasn't the only one who felt this way, like I said. Yeah, but you're the only one who feels this way on the podcast. I know. I'll just be honest with you. (laughs) And in general, and on film Twitter, I know. I thought she was cold steel in this movie. I thought she was uh, really, you know, giving us this poker face uh, for the first ninety minutes. And I, yeah, I don't get where she's overacting. I thought she was, cra- you know, veneer cracking act. You know, I got to come up with new terms for my <laughs> stuff. Veneer cracking. I was act. thinking what? about that after doing this for three plus well, years. Right now, it's like I, I say the same things. <laughs> I don't like pontification, right, from film critics. It mm-hmm. drives me a little crazy and all the – like, it's a tour de force. Fuck that <laughs> stuff. I'm trying to come up with my own stuff that makes more sense. And, yeah, no, that's nonsensical. Again, my metaphor game is not all that hot. But this best actress category is loaded, Mike. Yes. And this best actress category might have, at least for me, 
six at the end of the day that I don't know who not to pick. And it's going to break my heart when one of them gets snubbed if Zendaya is as good as people say she is. But right now I have a clear five with Francis McDormand, Viola Davis, Vanessa Kirby, Carrie Mulligan, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer from uh, French Exit. And then Zendaya is that looming sixth. And I don't know how I'm going to rank them at the end of the day. I can't wait to our category reviews and all our comparing and contrasting. Well, tease it. With, with, well, you weren't prepared for this, but tease it right now. Gun to your head. Just one or the other. McDormand or Carrie Mulligan here? McDormand or Carrie Mulligan? I, I would say Carrie Mulligan at the second. Like, gun to my head, I would say Carrie Mulligan. If you're asking me to pick who wins, or are you asking me to pick who's better? Which you prefer. I don't, I don't know, honestly. Ugh, I don't know. I thought... I, I don't know. I love them both, but they're both like top tier. And that's why I feel like, you know, we've missed some, you know, categories this year where it's wide open and I don't think we're getting our usual fare. Like maybe a few usual nominee level performances, nominee level you know, people involved. This category is loaded. Like these could be, these performances could be nominated in any year. Best actress. Yeah. And I'm just, I, I know a lot of people feel that way and I'm upset. I don't, and I want to get there. I just, I I don't like if to me apples to apples this performance against Pfeiffer I think Pfeiffer it, it easily wins this performance against Vanessa Kirby I don't think it's that close and I just I'm upset that I'm not there with it I want to be there so badly and, but she's gonna be I mean you know screw what I say it again everybody is so high on Carrie right. Mulligan in here they clearly see it the way you do it she's going to be there I think I would be very surprised if she's not nominated in the field of five for lead actress. Anyway, I don't think we're necessarily going to get into the Carrie Mulligan performance today. That's probably down the line a couple months from now, FYI. Because, I, you know, I, I didn't expect to have the Carrie Mulligan argument. I, I know, I, figured, I know, yeah, I know. You no, know, we didn't really know what, uh, that's why, you know, we're uh, stumbling and bumbling throughout this, uh, this metaphor <laughs> creation process, at least in my perspective. All right, Mike, Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham is a breakout acting star in this, and I didn't think he was going that route with his career. He is incredible in terms of how he's doing bits for an hour, and it doesn't feel like he's doing bits for an hour. Because look, when we saw him in The Big Sick, he was in it for like five minutes, mm -hmm. and it was very clear that he was doing bits, and it was awkward a little bit, even though he was funny. Yeah, uh, as much as we need to stay in our lane with dad jokes and just, like, life in general, Bo Burnham should never. That's how much out of his lane he should be because this guy is just awesome at everything. I love Bo Burnham. I love Laverne Cox, too. I know we're going to talk more about the ensemble, but yep. I thought those were the two performances that stood out to me most, Bo Burnham and Laverne Cox, and I would love to see momentum for either of them. I don't know that it's necessarily in the cards right now. I certainly haven't seen it happening, but much in the same way that we were very high on Molly Parker in Pieces of a Woman, I think Bo Burnham is kind of there, too, Laverne Cox as well. They This movie is just, they should be stages for those performances. This was, They were great in this. The com comedic performance doesn't necessarily get picked, unfortunately, mm -hmm. especially in supporting actor, and especially in a year as deep as this one. And, supporting and it's true because there's so much more than just comedy to this character here, you know? Right. Right, and no question about it. Uh, Feinberg has him 11th, uh, Awards Radar 16th, Joey there, and then uh, Clayton has him 23rd, Bo Burnham. But I I, I would guess he's going to be left out at the end of the day. This doesn't feel like an Oscar-nominated performance. He needs a lot of coattails. Agree. But like you said, let's, let's talk through 
the ensemble for a minute and we have a lot of male casting decisions here and it's just full of meta jokes like you think about these guys careers Mike right but the bad guys in this the quote-unquote bad guys from the trailer etc played by comedians played by old heartthrobs Mm -hmm. from the OC Adam Brody McLovin Christopher Mintz Plotz Schmidt from New Girl Max Greenfield Sam Richardson from all our favorite comedies and Veep there you have Glow and Veronica Mars's uh, Chris Lowell yeah. uh, plays Al Monroe in this. Mike, what'd you think of these guys? So this was one of the first things I picked up on when we first watched the trailer over a year ago. I think there was absolutely no mistake that the, you know, the, the meta-ness of this, the subtext of this being that these guys who are known for all these roles and all these quote-unquote nice guy personas on screen throughout their careers are being these horrible men <laughs> throughout this movie and I don't think that's a mistake I think that's very being yeah. done very purposely I think they wanted this job for that reason I think Emma Fennell wanted them for that reason I, I understand com- what's going on I think it works wonderfully I really do I, I, I'm going to talk negatively in spoilers but I, there's a lot objectively there's a lot of high marks in this movie there really is and this is one of them and I think Emerald Fennell did a great job uh, in directing them and in casting them and getting these performances because each one of these guys is a fucking creep <laughs> creep but they're so likable right. in terms of their filmography right mm-hmm. that we go in with certain expectations and then the, our expectations are thrown of course so it does matter and it does play on those multiple levels you also have stifler's mom jennifer coolidge is cassie's mom in this i don't think that's an accident she's the standout brilliant comedian from all those christopher guest ensembles well so too. that's so, the I mean, second part handle. of this is that th- yeah. there's so much i love the subversion of expectation the way every character is written because Jennifer Coolidge is probably best known as Stifler's mom, right? Yeah. I mean, at least in the movie. And this, this, she's like this concerned, overly real, just like angry and angsty and just bewildered mother who doesn't know what to do with her 30-year-old daughter. Uh, Adam Brody, McLovin, yep. these are all these doofuses or heartthrobs or whoever, these gullible you know, guys throughout cinematic history. And how do you write them? You write them as the biggest douchebag, fedora-wearing white knight creeps from the Reddit boards ever. You know, like that's I loved that about this movie. I really did. Yeah, I mean, Stifler's mom is the nonchalant mom, the devil-may-care mom that lets right. her sons run wild in the American Pie trilogy mm-hmm. and that screws her, you know, their their childhood friends and statutory rapes them, right? That's in an entire yeah. series of a beloved films. That's what it, That's where that's from. And, yeah, I mean, she is this cut-to-the-core-of-the-problem type character, even though she's very, you know, obviously passive-aggressive, hits on, you know, hit, you know, smacks her daughter around verbally in this movie, but she's also understanding that the alarm bells are sounding. Right. Her father is the one trying to sugarcoat everything, and her father is playing against type because this is Clancy Brown. This is, you know, every 80s and 90s, you know, franchise movie villain from Highlander to Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> Clancy Brown, Mike. I thought he was good, too. And he, again, another one that's casted against type here. He's just more laissez-faire, more let the kids celebrate in her own way, more relax. I mean, again, ultra-stylized just up and down throughout this movie, and it really... It's really well casted, it's really well directed, and it really does pay off. And in, to close, uh, Laverne Cox, this is kind of a star-making performance she was for her. I mean, she's really funny. She's in a really important role in this. And I'm, I just haven't been that familiar with her career. I've seen a few things she's done. But you, I was looking at her IMDb today. I was like, wow, yeah. look at this. I mean, she yeah, built up to this point where you've seen this happen to so many of these 
you know, people in movies like this where you're in that best friend character role, right? But that's your taking off point. I mean, hell, you know, Bo Burnham kind of did it a couple a couple years ago. Seth Rogen did it back in the Apatow days, right? And yeah. uh, Jonah Hill, et cetera, et cetera. This is one of those launching pads for Laverne Cox. So and if I'm, this I'm, movie I'm, is, really I mean, that's part of my frustration right now. If this movie is going to be this, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike, but tour de force that a lot of people <laughs> want it to be. And I'm like, like, okay, then get those performance. Like, I, I want yeah. nothing more than to see Bo Burnham and Laverne Cox in these conversations or in the supporting categories, more so than I want Carrie Mulligan in the lead. And it just, it seems like it's not going to happen. But I, I, I get it. I understand why people are in love with Carrie Mulligan. I understand why people are in love with the screenplay. Again, it would warm my heart to see the Academy Academy embrace this type of movie just in general uh, because I think that's badly needed and the more progressive and evolved we get with this Academy the better it'll be long term for movies and for genre pictures but I, I just wish Laverne Cox was being taken more seriously in a supporting actress conversation and that category should be looking for more people right. again I'm going right. to say it you know it's just just the facts you know I, I have a couple performances that I really really like and I definitely have a five or six or seven but I do think it should be under consideration, and we should be looking for, you know, uh, selections that we wouldn't consider. Necessarily. I mean, there's only I mean, yeah. two. Like, there's only one Ellen Burstyn performance this year. There's only one Amanda Seyfried performance this year. We, we, there's going to be other slots that need to be filled there. You know, right? But even the Amanda Seyfried one, I'm surprised that every, that's getting so much attention, so much love. Same. It's not your typical. It's not your typical obvious supporting actress performance even though i'm glad it's being recognized because i think it's all there and i love her career i, I think it's going to happen but yeah I, I agree with you on supporting actress listen let's put like an over under on this i think we talked through them all to close out this non-spoiler section i think original screenplay is a lock i, I don't do want to say that but i think that's true i think picture and actress are very probable i think director is on the outside looking in and then I think, you know, we're going to need coattails and we're going to need real momentum for cinematography, makeup and hair, editing. I think they're right on the edge. Well, how does... Or I think, let's just say, makeup and hair is right on the edge for sure. I mean, the, for it to yeah. be nominated for picture, what's it going to be? A two-nomination movie? Three-nomination movie? Actress, screenplay, picture? That's light for it to get a picture nom out of this, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not unprecedented. Ford v. Ferrari last year with four, three or four, right? And then, uh, I think it was four... Because editing, yeah, editing in both sounds. And then we had uh, Green Book, with the year Green Book mm-hmm. won with only five, and it won three or something. So And Parasite that's, didn't have that many either. Yeah, Parasite had maybe six, was it? I forget I now. Think Parasite but I, might have had four, actually, but gone. Right. So I, I think the days of needing... 10 or 11. I don't mm-hmm. know if those days ever existed. I mean, we can go back through. we got to do more Oscar history on this show. We, we, we've enjoyed it this year. We've actually, those episodes have done well for us. But when we do Oscar history, I think we find it across the gamut in terms of the number of nominations. There's a lot of paths forward. I just do think this movie is so... It makes such a it leaves such an impression on you in the categories that it's gonna be up for. I don't necessarily know if it gets four or five noms or three noms even, if that's such a huge problem with this particular movie. You know what I'm saying? I do. I just and Parasite did have six, you were absolutely right. I, I just struggle to it's tough for me to embrace it as a best picture contender if it's being shut out of every technical category. 
Well, that's what's going to be interesting because we think the uh, the technical categories are up to the standards, right. and let's just see if they gain some momentum. And if this does become a best picture category, there is a path for it to have coattails in many categories, and those coattails. I mean, it's it's not just coattails. Let's put it that way. It's legit. So mm-hmm. we both say no matter what, watch this movie. Trigger warnings in effect, though. So watch it, but understand what you're getting into. Yeah, for sure. You know, I don't know if we've emphasized that enough. But, uh, yeah, let's let's get into spoilers. Spoilers ahead! This is a spoiler warning. Spoilers. Spoilers. This is the spoiler section for the movie Promising Young Woman, the Oscar Sprint Profile, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause. Go check it out on PVOD. We'll be here waiting for you to come back and hit play on us. If you've seen the movie already, you're just curious to hear our thoughts, or you cannot possibly go another minute with wondering how one man can be so positive in the non-spoiler section and then so <laughs> negative in the non- in the spoiler section like I may be here. Uh, this is where you want to be. All spoilers all the time for Promising Young Woman, the Oscar Sprint Profile, brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Michael, where are we starting? Well, we're going to start with your worse in a, in a way the immediate carryover because you you couldn't really talk about them in yeah. the non-spoiler section so i think you're going to be more positive as, as we get into the best and worst segment tally off those at the end but let, let's let's dive into your worst now the problem i had and it's the same problem uh my girl had watching is just that i i feel like this makes more sense if this wasn't real and this is obviously, I mean, based on what happens in the movie, she is murdered in a grisly way. This is a, a, a true-to-life retelling of whatever this character is going through. But there are so many scenes to me that are so contrived, and the plot gets going because of so many coincidences. I, I just have a really tough time taking this on its face as reality. Uh, coincidence, like, for just example... Carrie Mulligan's Cassie is this vengeance, right? She's this vengeance warrior doing this all for Nina, and yet she's willing to drop her entire caricature uh, on its face because she is starting to fall for a guy from the med school class that she wants revenge on and basically started this whole crusade against in the first place. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, so am I, uh, you're going to get these out now, or do you want me to kind of go back at you for some of these? Because here's the thing, like my role here is like I can mitigate some of these, but I also don't necessarily disagree with you wholeheartedly. I think the thing with me is that I don't, I don't necessarily have the, the same, I don't, I don't recoil the same way. You from put a different valuation on it. Yeah. In a, in a movie that I know is dancing on that line, as Emerald Fennell puts it, of allegory of of symbolism and realism right uh, of allegorical and uh you know just uh, a day in the life they did i, I think and that's think where the subjectivity comes enough. in yeah. but you also are not just any guy i mean you've sat in a thousand courtrooms and you've had to deal with these situations being litigated over after the fact and you've had to get into the nitty-gritty details and you kind of say and call bs 
Well, and this movie gets into not. the nitty gritty too. I mean, this movie—that's a grisly death scene at the end. It's very real. It's very gritty, and it's—it's it's, you see the whole thing. I mean, Emerald Fennell, to her credit, I think, kind of shows you the trauma. It's a traumatic event to watch, and it's hard to watch. That doesn't jive with some of the other parts of this. Like, it's kind of a superhero fantasy, an antihero fantasy, where. Carrie Mulligan can get out of her car in the middle of broad daylight on a busy street and just ruin right. this guy's car and his taillights and take a tire, a wrench to it, and there's no consequence to her doing that. She can drug Allison Bree's character, set her up to do whatever, and there's really no consequence of it other than Allison Bree giving her something, giving her an asset, something she had been concealing this whole time in that tape of what actually happened to her friend Nina. It's just very bizarre to me how there's no consequences and then there's the greatest consequence. Well, the whole, yeah, I disagree with the Allison Brie scenario because that is entirely leveraged and set up. And then it do, when it does pay off, it's the best worst thing that can happen. That's typical dramatic story structure. The best worst thing happens when she gets the tape, she gets the old phone, and it's the best thing because she finally has the evidence against this guy, and she understands what happened in that room, and then she also understands and dodges the bullet of the Ryan character, right. but it's the worst thing that that happens because she rushes up the plan of vengeance, and she puts herself in such jeopardy that she's been building up to the whole movie, and she's been you know, self-destructive in terms of her, you know, revenge tour or whatever it is, her experiment, I've been calling it in my own notes, Mike, because she was a med student and because there is a very calculated way in which she seems to select these guys and, and, and continues to put them to the test in every scenario. But I like I give you the road rage scene in a way, because obviously I think, you know, we've heard about these scenes playing out very violently. And if you take you take a tire iron to the wrong person's car that person gets out and could beat you to death with it or could well, at the very I mean, least or, call the cops on you uh, sure right or, or you can you know how many scenes she has this whole notebook she's doing this to all these types of guys where she's just laying these lessons on them and shaming them and embarrassing them and and i was told you know you can't i would never do that as a woman because the guy would beat the shit out of me if this was real like that's a real fear that a lot of women have to deal with that's like okay then how does she have yeah. this whole book of people she's been doing this to? And it's a pro. It's a. It is a subjective issue for me. I, I understand. I'm putting greater valuation in the idea yeah. of realism, and I, I get that. But it, it just left such a sour taste in my mouth watching this. Well, I also think that the type of guy that's being skewered in this movie is the type of guy that Al Monroe is. Like the satire and the story is trying to rip apart this. You know, this this fake faux male victimhood facade of this yeah, the Al white Monroe privileged character. white knight ultra nice guy, right? But he's really a predator, and he's been a predator from the word jump, and he preys on the most vulnerable in those situations. I mean, he is a rapist, Al Monroe, and all of these guys are rapists, and they're the most cowardly kinds. And they, when they get found out, they whine and cry and recoil and even become her lapdogs. Like, there's a scene where, where the I think, I'm not sure about this, but I'm pretty sure the guy from the bar at the beginning does his hair differently and then is the same guy she employs to look after Allison Bree's character. I've watched this movie multiple times oh, now, and it's the same freaking face. I looked at IMDb. I couldn't figure out if it's the same actor or not, but I do believe it's the same one. And I know she uses, she'll use the lawyer, Alfred Merlina, later in the movie. Right. But I guess my point is, is that 
she is building these scenes, Emerald Fresnel, of the same kind of guy leading to the big boss at the end of the worst of these types mm-hmm. of guys. All her tallies are different colors, right, mm-hmm. in that book. We don't know. And the way she acts, she might be dealing with such levels of trauma in her own life because she's put herself in this situation so many times. Who's to say that she hasn't been raped however many times? Right. She's molested. We see that, unfortunately. Sure. And it's and it's it's awful. Right. And she, and she turns the tables on these guys after they literally molest her. And that works out to, to a tell-off scene times one, times two, times three. But it, well, even the third one kind of pays off and blows up in her face, but in a different way. It doesn't get violent. How many of those situations, how many of those tallies were violent? We don't know. And I I do think that's left open-ended. I don't disagree. Um, I I don't know it's something I can get over, though. Like, it it, it just, it, God. I'm just saying the movie leaves you room to reason away the obvious objection here because we don't we've only seen three of those tallies we haven't seen you know the 50 of them i mean she could have gotten raped 10 times i mean this could be such a disturbed woman because of the fact that she's gone through such trauma herself and right because she's yeah so i mean she she proves to be that self-destructive in the end i mean she has i mean she she doesn't care i mean she's a hero in that regard because she's not just She's not a violent vigilante in this film. Like, that's the whole crazy thing about it. She's not a violent vigilante. What she does... Which was a brilliant misdirect. I thought this movie was setting us all up to believe that she was going to castrate these right? men cause some kind... Yeah, I, I agree with that. She basically... I mean, in a way, she shames them, but she also instructs them. She makes them recognize what they're doing. And, even you know, and, and it's more Connie Britton scenario and more to the Alice and Bree scenario than elsewhere... But she really is a passive and pacifist warrior until she turns violent. And Emerald Fennell will show that to be the ultimate sin of the movie and the fatal flaw that she has. And that is where the revenge storyline ultimately dooms her. And that's what Emerald Fennell. But she's violent prior to that. too. Like she's violent to the car. Well, she escalates. She escalates towards violence. There's no question about it. And her scenes get more and more dangerous. Her scenes get more and more violent. And that's a scenario where she comes out of the Dean's office and she is hollowed out by the revenge. She tries to take on the Dean. What did she get out of that? It's unsatisfying. Did she get any closure? She built up for, to that for how many months and months and months. And yes, she was distracted by the Ryan courtship, but she actually turned away from the Ryan courtship before we get three scenes in a row of, uh, you know, the, the the scenes with all the women. We get her reckoning with womankind, not just mankind in this movie. I mean, there's one, two, three scenes in a row with Alison Brie and and then again with Connie Britton there uh, where she's talking to the, to the women enablers. And that Dean is an enabler of rapists right. in this movie. And she has to show her the real meaning of her ways. And it is quite the... It is quite the lesson, let's just say. But what does she get out of it? Again, the revenge is hollow. The revenge is futile. And that's what Emerald Fennell has been saying as a theme of the film in every interview she does. Let me take this approach because this is kind of where this all started. I'm trying to work this through my head in real time as we're recording here. Does it not work better if if this was a bit Mulholland Drive? Like, obviously, there has been a traumatic event or events that happened to the Cassie character. And I yeah. think it's safe to say she's not well mentally. 
Right. Which opens up a lot of possibilities. Right. So wouldn't and it... which you got to consider for other characters, like the guy in the road rage incident. But doesn't it make more sense if that if some of this was just a cathartic fantasy of hers, and then when she actually does try to enact revenge, <sighs> then it turns fruitless. That's what happens to her, and it's it's. I'm glad it wasn't though, Mike. I'm glad it wasn't. I'm glad there's because then it opens up a whole another can of worms about discrediting her mission. Which ultimately That's true. turned that out is to true. be quite, that is true. quite noble. And where I think this movie works best is thematically. I think this is not just a feminist statement. It's it's a statement about human nature. It's and it's not and it's not just guys versus girls. Like this is this is a certain special type of guy, a certain scuzzy type of situation. And I've heard a lot of criticisms out there from certain types of guys. And like I don't get like I don't get where they have beef with a movie like i didn't i don't watch this movie and feel like oh my god this is i can't believe she hates all men she's such a man hater oh no, get the I'm fuck like, out of here no these guys are i monsters. don't know who I, these guys are these monsters. guys are fucking monsters there and, and and we all have heard that type of language before in our past we all know those guys are out there i mean you and i basically retired from the freaking going out scene yeah. that we never really embraced from the beginning like you and I, 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 the little I know of your back, you're not a clubbing guy. I'm not no. a clubbing guy. Never was, never will be. I was, but I, I mean, I, no, you know. I, but yeah, for maybe a couple of years until you realize, like, this is gross. Not, not, not yeah, not Stevie. This. Like, not, not bad at all. Absolutely not. I, and, and, and the, yeah. the movie does, I mean, Emma Fennell does do a great job. And this is why I think the cinematography comes into play. Even the Adam Brody scene, like, that establishing yeah. shot is so genius because it's showing this wide open apartment. It's showing him going out of his way to sit close to her on that couch and all that space just to be a total fucking creep. Like, there, I don't think there's any gray area about the men here at all. I don't understand that criticism from other people whatsoever. Well, I, I do think they're a bit curved as characters, and I think the fact that they're played by comedians does help the matter because they are cowards at the end of the day. But I, are they rounded characters fully? No. The most rounded representation of these types of guys is, of course, Ryan. It is, of course, Bo Burnham. Right. And that's why it's so effective. Now, I was going to have... Yeah, I, 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 it crossed my mind, and it crossed my mind reading some criticisms of the movie, like I said, that that guys are kind of aggravated with this to a degree, and they're, you know, and it crossed my mind. It's like, hey, is this like Joker? Because we killed Joker last year because there was no glimpse of kindness anywhere from any character in that entire mm. Gotham world. The entire world of the story, no kindness, nothing that to, that he can cling to. Well, all. it is interesting. This is not true here. It, that, it, that's not. It's not the same scenario in this movie. Is what I'm trying to get forth because, yeah, the guys are nasty, but it doesn't matter. This is a certain type of guy. It's I, a certain breed of. Guy. I think I can be. It's, it's not every yeah. guy. And it is interesting, regardless of what the type of like. I think the Alfred Molina character is a recovering creep, right? And he t yeah. he blames the system, and he blame you know, uh, we got bonuses for every conviction, and it wasn't right. And I, like, it is interesting that every male character needs Cassie's abs absolving. You know, she, they need absolution from her because they're all asking, you have to forgive me. Bo Burnham says it. Chris Lowell says it. Alfred Molina says it. They're all, and that, this again goes to me towards this like cathartic fantasy deranged mental state thing because they're all asking for forgiveness explicitly. It's not like a, a hidden thing. So in in my mind, is to me, I'm like, well, is she like playing God? Is she, is she actually this, a toxic Avenger type anti-hero here that's like 
Yeah, but she's a passive one, and, not, and I don't a pacifist one, not a passive, but she she's a nonviolent one until the end, which is what dooms her. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing, right? And that's why that's why this is not the revenge movie we expected. It's still a revenge movie, and it's an anti revenge revenge story, right? But yeah, you figure she's going to be Elizabeth Salander. You figure she's going to be a serial killer. And when when she's walking down this, we're, we're getting to our best and worst where we kind of chronicle things. But when she's walking down the street on the the one of the greatest you know, walk of shame montages sequences ever. In it my wasn't opinion. a walk of shame. Loved, yeah, it was a walk of pride. Yeah. I loved it so much because it subverts right. that typical sequence. And she's on purpose eating that hot dog with the ketchup or jelly yep. dripping down it. And you wonder if she's a serial killer. Is she masking a stain right. in that scene? Does she have blood stain on her shirt? And now she's telling everybody that the blood stain's actually a chili stain. And she's just walking home in plain sight getting away with murder. That's what I was thinking in the moment when I first saw it. But she's not going to be this violent toxic avenger here and friends of the show like kenzie of the uh motor city drive-in pod i mean they've written about how emerald fennell was considering uh, another arc for cassie another arc where she was ultimately going to be that elizabeth salander scene at the end of this and she was going to cut off the guys whatever and blah 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 it really gruesome ending that was an alternate ending written into this film at one point Go and read that article, MotorCityDriving.com. They're doing some great stuff there. But I, I would say instead we get this genre-bending satire, Mike, that is, like you said before, both a tragedy and a comedy. And the tragic arc for our for our main character happens because of what it, where the reason it always happens, whether it's Macbeth or whether it's uh, a movie like uh, Surrounding Cassie here. They have to fuck up. They have to have that fatal flaw and hers is, she, after an entire movie of fighting against, taking violent revenge against this man, she does take violent revenge. She does take her revenge instead of, you know, going for justice, which she could have gone for. And that's the thing, like, Mike, justice in this case, and I wanted to ask you, justice in this case necessarily, you know, they're in med school, right? And then she's 30, you know, how many years away from college is that? I mean, it could be 24, 25, 26. This could be five or six years from the event, from the event where Nina is raped. I think she said seven in the uh, in the movie itself. All right. So seven years. Now, I looked up the statute of limitations in North Carolina. Now, I don't know if this movie's set in North Carolina. It looked like North Carolina to me. They say the word forest, so I thought Wake Forest. Anyway, just in that one state, it says the statute of limitations on rape and my Google search was three years, but it can be extended up to 10 yeah. years if it was revealed that the rape was concealed. Yeah. Have you heard of this? Yeah. It, would, would, could you make an argument that it was concealed in this movie by Alison Brie? What do you think? Legally? Uh, there, I think there's, you know, when it comes to, to sex assault, it's a very fluid situation legally anyway. And there's all sorts of caveats and uh, statute of limitations is, uh, I think, more fluid than in other areas for other crimes. Uh, right. It's really tough to say what's hard and fast, and it obviously depends state by state anyway uh, when it comes to those sorts of charges. So, which is asinine, by the way. Yeah, it should be sure. Fucking long. I just gets me. I'm gonna. It gets me ripping pissed when I think about the justice system and how the fact that you can't. I mean, these are su- these. I mean, look at look at the portrayal of someone whose friend was raped in this movie, and look at the reverberations and the crater it leaves in the friend's lives, never mind the person's life who, yeah, but Nina, that's, I mean, apparently killed herself. That's kind of part of, part of my frustration, too, the more I'm thinking about it, is, like, if you're going to decide 
to kill off the Cassie character in this way in which the script does, I don't know how you end the movie in a satisfactory way anyway, because if the the movie, the ending they go with, all the bad guys get caught by the cops anyway, right? So it's a satisfactory ending for us, the viewer, because the bad guys are going to face justice, except they don't face justice. Like, there's no consequences that have that face justice leading up to this point. To me, I mentioned this last episode, it really hollowed me out, the ending of this film. And it's still going for laughs at the end, too. That's what really threw threw me for a loop. I mean, you have Schmidt, full-blown going for comedy. I mean, you killed the stripper at right. the bachelor party. What is this, what is the, this 1990s? the 90s? Yeah. That song, that song, This is a man yes. who you must protect yes. and forgive. Yes. This is a man who tries. I don't know what that's from. It made me laugh so hard. It's such a fucked up laugh. And then you think about the laugh and you're like, oh my God, this is a song that actually exists of about about a woman explaining away some asshole guy. Which, by the way, a litany of other asshole guys. There's, yeah. I mean, and I have this too. A lot of my highlights and likes are I was, I mean, there's legitimately hysterical stuff in this. Anyone having a problem calling this is clearly has both comedy and dra- dramatic aspects. I can see the Golden yeah. Glow HFPA categorizing this as either one. So I don't understand that controversy whatsoever. Again, it's subjective or it's a degree of objectivity, as I like to say it wrongly. But I do think the hollow ending recontextualizes the comedy. Like when you rewatch this movie, the jokes aren't quite as funny and some of them are even funnier because they went there. The audacity of the joke that Emerald Fennell wrote for Bo Burnham when, when he's calling her mom hot in that hilarious way. But is he really being hilarious there? Or is he just as much of a... Right, a, is he just a, being a creep? Uh, Oh my God, like you rethink about this stuff. It's from every single line he says, you have to recontextualize it. And you have to recontextualize the entire romantic comedy genre, Mike, because this movie has so many tropes from that genre. Like the stalker character that you hate so much as the rom-com <laughs> leading man, that that character from when Harry met Sally that does all of these things that shouldn't be done in any courtship that border on the insane and that just uh, the man hunting the woman and yeah total stalker sister uh scenario when bo burnham does all of that stuff in this movie and when it backfires it is the harshest rebuke of that genre that i've ever seen and they do it making a laugh making you laugh like 47 times yes and yet at the <laughs> same time like I, I i agree with what you're saying and you know <laughs> billy crystal is awful and when harry met sally i'll stand by that that's a hell i'm willing to die on um but at the same time the entire movie is based around bo burnham a guy from her med school class who knows what she looks like but nobody else from her med school class does well like the rom-com tropes happen with bo burnham i understand that but the whole bo burnham storyline is leading into this giant confrontation with the christopher lowell character at the end now Here's the thing. She's in costume, number one. She's also remarked throughout the movie to other guys that she has changed in appearance. Like, she was not the looker as she is now. She's not was not in the shape she's in now. And we talk about the production design being, like, again, stunted. This arrested development that she has as a character, as a person, and having every screen on her house showing pictures of her and Nina and her, the best friends and every everything's pink. Children, everything yeah. looks like a little girl's yeah. room and then all and she, then she's he, she's literally playing a character every weekend even maybe more than once a week it seems 
every weekend she's going out and she's Venus fly trapping these guys, but not really. Obviously, that's a whole thing. We talked about it. It's like she's playing a role. And I, so I don't know how recognizable she is to those guys. And I do think the movie tries to argue that away a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's a subjective thing. Like, not enough for me. I just, it doesn't explain it to, to me. And I don't understand why nobody questioned who got the stripper for the bachelor party. Clearly, they were expecting a stripper. At least Max Greenfield was. No, I, well, I don't, Mike, I've been, I, I didn't know if I should say this, but I, I will say it because it, it's the truth. I've been to, like, four or five of these Cabin in the Woods bachelor parties. Not at one of them. N- never. Has there been a stripper that showed up? But I'll be honest with you. If if a stripper did show up at one of these bachelor parties, I would not be shocked. I, all right, somebody ordered a stripper at the bachelor party. And, you know, obviously would, it wouldn't be a shock to me, but it never happened to me before. And but I you wouldn't been, act you know, like I, I, I think I human nature would be like uh, just out of curiosity. Like who ordered it? She would come with a bot. I understand. It's realism and well, I'm nitpicking. She and it addresses that in the script. I mean, they're, they're like, who ordered the stripper? Nobody fesses up. I mean, Al Monroe talks to this. Whole, nobody's nobody's going to nobody's going to stand up and tell me who, you know, I mean, it's in the script. Right. Again, they're arguing in a way in a little bit. Yes, there are explanations. They do they do explain stuff away. There's attempts, but I guess part of my frustration is that it's just to me it doesn't go far enough. And I understand that's a nitpick and that's a, criti- a subjective criticism. But even even the uh, you know yeah she turns Bo Burnham down for the date, and then Bo Burnham happens to go to the same bar at the same time yeah. on the same yeah. night. Yeah. You know, I don't have I don't have a rationalization for that one. That's just pure unequivocal coincidence and it bothered me too and and i'll be honest with you that last scene at the bachelor party bothered me too because when you have that bachelor party years later usually everybody's arriving at a different time from god knows where and she thinks she's going to get them all lined up for shots at that point i mean i guess there's times at night where everybody's there at the same time of course but like every one i've ever been i've been to four or five no strippers somehow if my mom's listening she's happy (laughs) (laughs) he's a good christian boy I was, I guess, or my, so were my friends somehow, because we never did that shit. But bottom line is, I, everybody arrived at different times, literally, throughout the whole experience. <laughs> so if she didn't have them all lined up right then and there, whoever walks in there, you don't have to be Inspector Clouseau to realize that they've all been drugged and that you go upstairs <laughs> and figure out what the hell goes on. And she would have gotten, you know, even if it went well for her, she would have gotten, you know, taken out then maybe that's my paranoid maybe that is my real life experience lawyer brain coming into play because after i asked the best man and like two other people if they all said no i like would have turned the music down. wait a minute <laughs> who in this room or how do we know this woman isn't here yeah. to drug us <laughs> well that's the thing like you that's that's why i don't i don't t- like i don't even remotely take this personally from a guy's perspective because we're not these type of fucking guys. Right, period. Right. End of story. Like I, I don't get these type of guys at all. No, like I, it, it makes me angry, disgusting, and pissed off. It's, it's disgusted and pissed off. I should say to to see them go through this. But I, I, I have I have issues with certain things in this movie. But I, for me, I can I can get past them because I have issues with Marvel movies and Pixar movies, and I. I just feel like this movie exists in the realm of, like like Emerald Fennell puts it, like the symbolic and the stylized versus the realistic. And I, I'm, 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 I'm okay with things being in that realm without having to say this is, I don't want to spoil other movies that could be 
real or not real, or you're wondering about them, right? But it, I don't think it's one of those movies, right? I don't, Maybe in five years, well, it'll dawn on us, and the realism is like, oh my god, that was really one of those head trips. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't, I don't think it is either. I think my entire point of view just comes from I want to like this movie so much more that I think that's what I'm clinging to. Is like, well, this would make sense to me if it was, you know. But I don't think it is. I, I based on what we see, there's no reason to suggest this is anything other than what's actually happening. I agree with you. Well, let's finish up our best and worst and kind of go chronologically through the plot for a second or if hot five minutes, ten minutes here, whatever it is, uh, and, and see anything we might have missed, Mike. Uh, I do think best walk of shame scene ever. Great song, Girls in the Beginning, Khaki Dancing. I think she's really distraught that men are like this and that the men she meets are like this. And I think that is a little bit underestimated in her performance, that she is, yes, she's a vigilante of sorts. She's like the Mother Teresa of vigilantes, the, you know, the, <laughs> the passive one, the Gandhi of vigilantes, but I guess she is one uh, of sorts. But, like, the insane tragedy here is that she is really trying to instruct that she's not becoming who she hates in this movie until the end when she's willing as a doctor to carve the guy's name or to carve her friend's name in the guy's yeah, chest. She's resigned to the fact that this is, and this is true for so many women and it's fucking sad. I mean, I, I I'm with, I'm like you, I do not. Well, that's why Emerald Fennell landed on that ending though, you know, and she said it in every interview she ever did. She's like, this is not a scenario in, in most cases, you know, going through history, you know, if you're a law historian or whatever, if you're just living life and in her experience, this is not a scenario that ends well. Yeah. And it ends in a Elizabeth Salander bloodbath or that ends in a uh, in this, you know, fantasy revenge story. This ends badly for women time and again. And it has crushing implications for the friends and family, oh. numbing in- implications for everybody. I mean, there's so much just shit that. Every female needs to worry about just on a daily basis that doesn't yeah. even cross our mind. Like we take it such for granted, and there there are like these worlds exist in right now where every it seems like every man is like this or acts like this, and it's gross. And it's it again, it just makes me fucking sad to to know that people experience this. So I'm not saying this is unrelatable or unbelievable at all. I mean, it's I think the movie does a really good job, and yeah, in that situation, some type of you want to have the best. I mean, it is it is poetic. You want to have the best type of yeah. revenge ever, but if you actually acted it out, it probably wouldn't end well for you. And it just, you know, what do you do? It's a lose lose. Again, it's like this measured level of realism, and it's, mm-hmm. it's on anyway. Uh, a story and B story. I, I really think it's smart how Emerald Fennell writes these and how they collide throughout the story. It's structurally really accurate in terms of every screenwriting professor should teach this A versus B story collision. I mean, the A story is obviously the revenge for Nina. It becomes a revenge mm-hmm. for Nina. It's self-destructive, etc. You know, how about, I would say, you know, 60, 65% of the, the scenes in this movie are about that. But then the B story is the Ryan rom-com right. with Bo Burnham. And the meet cute in the Ryan rom-com is she spits in his coffee <laughs> and she is almost testing him like this strange aberration from all these other guys, right, in that scene. And I just thought it was the most fucked up meet cute ever. 
and I'm, I mean, it's like it's one of my favorite meat cute scenes in a rom com sequence. I can't believe they went there. Yeah, I don't. I didn't think it was fucked up. I thought it was actually like really cool. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, you think like, all right, this is a disgusting guy. He's a doctor. He gets it. All right, maybe this because you don't know it's going to go so right. Bad right, you don't know Bo Burnham is a fucking creep like the rest of them. And you the movie. I mean, that's part of what the subversion of expectation was with the plot in general, which I really did you like. Think I thought he's it was a close. contrast character, right? You think he's a contrast character, but he's still in the same circle. Exactly. Douche guys, but I mean, my God, when he, yeah, when he drops the line, I mean, he's he's coaxing her, he's pushing her into a date. It's like I went on a date last week with a woman who wanted to euthanize the homeless, and she goes, <laughs> "You went on a date with my mom." I mean, the lines in this movie are just killer comedy, just really funny. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think she initially thinks he's part of the experiment for her. She's talking herself into that. When, when he actually does become a part of that experiment and when he does trick her after the, at the end of their date, oh, my God, this is my apartment. What does she do? She walks away. She's like, I don't want you to become a part of this experiment. She kicks the thing. My God, I, I thought that was you know fascinating upon rewatch. But he, the next day, apologizes. So, again, she's like, you know, she's wrestling with the fact that maybe this is is a real relationship and maybe he is different and and yeah they could take it slow and he's like i could write a poem right <laughs> Kills me. the leukemia uh, joke about the kid in the hospital that he made oh my there's God, nothing i can do up. for him yeah <laughs> yo this movie is is dancing on this this same tone of just unjoke aboutable satire right like you should not joke about kids with leukemia you should not joke about fucking somebody else's mom even if it's stifler's mom you should not joke about any of these things but he's joking about him the whole movie and his comedy is dangerous the whole movie and then when you think back to his comedy you're like oh my god he was dangerous right so he's an enabler of al monroe and and even gail is questioning him right laverne cox is questioning him i'll I'll stop asking him if he's killed children when he stops (laughs) killing children and he admitted that kids have died on his operating table so who is this guy yeah (laughs) that seems fair fair. (laughs) but that's the great collision scene sequence right because gail leaves and A story collides with B story because he's feeling awkward and he's like, all right, maybe this awkward phase, let me talk about our old friends that I know she doesn't really want to talk about. But all right, if we're going to be friends, she's got to know my friends. Al Monroe's getting married again and the scumbag's marrying a bikini model and she gets the wind tunnels in her ears and that's great mm-hmm. sound design yep. right there. And then we get thrown into three revenge scenes where she's like not even going after men. She's going after women, womankind, Madison, the dean's daughter, the dean. Three different generations of women who enable men. The, the the daughter who's just obsessed with the boy band, and it's called Wet Dreams. I mean, can it get any more? You know, then you have a Madison who had literally enabled them. And the payoff to the Madison sequence is you get the phone. Then, of course, the Dean and the payoff to the Dean is she's catatonic in that car for the road rage scene. You realize how mentally ill she is. So I, I think I, I'm a big fan of how the script does progress michael the one worst scene that i did have as a, as a contrivance that bothered me that actually didn't seem to bother you was the alfred molina sequence i liked that just because it seemed like he was the one guy who was the uh, opposite type of character he was and they say so he became uh, unlikely the contrast man right. in this movie that's what i was referring to before like none, none of these men no of course he is and he's asking her forgiveness and like you said that sequence to me like the fact that you know, he just so happened to have his epiphany before she 
came right. there. I mean, I, that to me, that was a coincidence, and that bothered me. But again, they try to explain it away, so I gave Emerald, Emerald Fresnel the credit. I gave her the credit in that Cassie is surprised by this, so much so that it is the first of three mentor scenes where she'll go and talk to you know Nina's mother, and she'll talk to her own parents. She'll get three mentor scenes of people telling her to go away from this revenge plot. And and Alfred Molina is one, and she's getting hope for humanity. Was she because have Alfred Molina has changed? She was ha- having hit something happen right. to him because was, there's that goon. Right, outside. and that's what that's I guess what I, like if if that guy was a hitman, if he was there just to mess Alfred Molina up, that's one thing. But if he was a hitman, then she had already decided to choose violence as revenge. She had I already think, decided to go to revenge for all these people. I think she's building towards physical violence of some kind. Now, was she going to try and have that guy bully him into giving her evidence? We don't know. Again, I think it's left open-ended, but you're ending in a place of violence. So I do think Emerald Fresnel's, you know, seeding that in her mind. Like, she is going towards violence, but you you do get those mentor scenes with Molly Shannon, who does a nice job in this movie, by the way. I liked her, too. And then she goes back to Ryan's apartment, and he rejects her in a moment. But you get the montage after that of her getting her life together. You think it's rom com? Yeah, there was very where... rom com montages, uh, and the stars are blind. There's no, you know, with the Paris Hilton song playing over it again. Not a mistake, right. and it's another example of the the music being used just superbly. And it, I mean, it's overly cheesy. My, my apologies to Miss Hilton's singing career, but the song is ridiculous. You know, well, and and what they're doing built... is ridiculous. They're dancing in a pharmacy in the aisles yes. built into the rom-com mike are subversions of the rom-com we see this with every new rom-com that comes out on netflix or that comes out on uh, uh in the movies when they do come out but i mean look at set it up like set it up had that real talk to it i mean it, you always modernize the dialogue but you had this old school scenario and all and the young 20 somethings in that movie are like this is bullshit we're gonna do it our own way and every rom-com kind of evolves and you thought that was going to happen here like this is okay this is the evolved modern day rom-com where do you want to go to dinner you miserable asshole that's the way to get the girl in a 2020 rom-com that's hilarious where you know the next after the dinner with the parents that is just so awkward so awkward uh but after that dinner you know dr katzen uh (laughs) yeah God, just kill me. The sauce, the sauce. I wanted to tear my fucking face off watching that I, me scene. Me too. And I wanted to tear my face off watching the Paris Hilton uh, dance scene, by the way. You see, I, that, yeah, I wish you I felt it. like that. I, I really did like it. I was like, oh, this is nice. I'm like, this is a bad <laughs> omen. This is getting way too happy, way too fast. This is a problem. But in bed with Ryan, after they finally, I guess, consummated, or maybe they did earlier, I forget. Your mom, your mom is so hot. I can't believe it. I can't believe he went there. And I figured, all right, this is this is just, you know, again, taking that rom-com a little further. I'm going to buy you a bicycle. Funniest <laughs> fucking line of the movie. And when he's trying uh, to express that he loves it, just shut up, you stupid bitch. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. This awful, and it's, it's also a commentary stuff. on red flags, too, because he's chock right. full of them. And obviously, when you watch it again, you see that, you know, knowing what Ryan is at the end of this, these like you're saying this whole time, you could interpret all of these differently. And at her happiest, she's on cloud nine. She's changed her life. Madison shows up at her house, and it's smoking gun time. Mm-hmm. And the reveal that Bo Burnham was watching the video, and we don't know if he was filming the video, but the reveal of that, and she it goes over her face, and then she rushes 
I mean, she, you know, she contemplates it, but she rushes the revenge at the bachelor party because he, you know, ticked all the time away from her ticking clock heading towards that bachelor party when they put the ticking clock into the script. So she confronts Ryan. She leverages the, the side of the bachelor party out of him. And she's got this slapdick plan to, to go out and, and get her revenge, literally, and carve the name into this guy's chest, which was ultimately, Mike, a, a stupid plan. Like I said, it was brilliant because her contingency plan was set up with the lawyer, with everybody to frame him, or not frame him, but to, to convict him in, right. in, in many ways. And unfortunately, the contingency plan showed us what we always feared from this character from the beginning is that she was self-destructive and she was willing to be a martyr for her ultimate revenge of getting this guy convicted of murder which she thinks he was guilty of based on raping her friend her friend who killed herself so again this is her her idea of revenge she's thinking it's justice and i do think emerald Fennell is showing us distinctions between justice and revenge in this movie if she just got her revenge and got away and we got a cool scene where she's walking away from the bachelor party and she she killed all the guys or whatever and maybe that's and, part and, of it maybe part of this was that there is no justice period because there's no justice for the guy who's right. whose car cassie beats the shit out of there's no you know i mean maybe there's just no, it's a justice list world and maybe that is something that this kind of shares with with Joker in a way is that instead of everybody being miserable, there's absolutely no comeuppance. But again, that's undercut by the very end scene at the wedding when there is a comeuppance for everyone. So I, 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 I just again say I don't know what would have been a satisfactory ending for me because you can't let the guys get away with it because that's a miserable guess- ending, you know? It's it's bit it's very bittersweet, but it's also very satisfying to see him get taken away right. in cuffs at the wedding. It's very satisfying to hear Angel of the Morning. It's very satisfying to watch Bo Burnham see all those texts from her love Cassie and Nina. I mean, all of that's very satisfying to a degree. The question is, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's never going to be an even Steven revenge. Right. And then revenge never is. And that's the whole point of it. That's mm-hmm. why it needs to be distinguished from justice. Wow. Yeah. Loaded review for a loaded movie, I think. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's a talk that I needed. I, I Again, I, I was not so down. Look, I understand there's a difference between liking a movie and recognizing a good movie. Uh, and it's the subjectivity versus objectivity. It's kind of what the whole basis of this entire review has been. And objectively, this is a good movie. I mean, the highs outweigh the lows. I certainly say that, and I reflect that in my grade as well, even though I'm, I'm just not as high on it as I think you are. I mean, I'm, I, if you want to get into final grades, I've been teetering like a B minus B. I'm probably more B, but like I'm 84. I just, I'm such a plot junkie. When you rely on coincidences and, and happenstance as the way this one does, I'm going to get aggravated. I'm going to always leave with a sour taste in my mouth. That's the subjectivity of it. The objectivity, this is a highly stylized, many great performances, many highs about this movie, the production values. I could watch that scene where the light is flashing off her off Carrie Mulligan's face in the uh, slideshow she's watching of pictures of yeah. her and Nina forever. I think that's one of the most beautiful shots I've seen in the 2020 wow. film year. Yeah. Uh, so, th- I mean, there's e- extreme highs that are objective. Uh, I, I, I have it. I'm 84, 85, right in that solid B range. What about you? Well, I mean, insert rant that I used last episode here, because that's the main reason I love this movie. I think to make this, a an effective satire and to for it to work as a tragic comedy and to work in that genre and to pull the wool over our eyes in terms of our expectations and what genre we thought was happening going in and to change that 
I, I am shocked, and that's why I give it points for you know the high degree of difficulty, I guess. And I don't mean to twist the knife and use your language to tell you why I love the movie because <laughs> I am doing it there. I'm also very passive aggressive and judgmental. We put those forward too. So, like, I tried to defend this movie more than I tried to defend Parasite a year ago. That was definitely something I wanted to do. This it was an easier job for you. This one's better. This one tasted better than Parasite did for me. Okay, even for you, and you weren't yeah. as disappointed in Parasite. But you know, the three point curve is still there. Like you have this as probably a B eighty five, eighty six, eighty four, whatever, yeah. B eighty three, what even, but I'm you know a B plus. So I had my issues with the film too, and I got some things that I just can't put my finger on. Do I think this is necessarily an all time masterpiece? I don't know, but I do think this is on a top tier of twenty twenty, and I do think that this particular year there are avenues where I would be very very happy if it did get voted into uh, many categories and certainly towards some awards because I want to see more movies yeah. like this. I, I mean, it's I love so, it's so unique. This. It's so unique mm-hmm. that like even though I personally don't would I don't know that I'll have it in my top anything's for the Mike Mike and Oscars outside of maybe Bo yep. Burnham and Laverne Cox. But, like, I want to see the Academy embrace this just because of what it means going forward for movies. In the same way I wanted to see the Academy embrace Parasite, despite the fact that I did not like Parasite. Right. So I, I'm i glad that we have a movie that we can both get behind, at least in terms of aesthetics, mm-hmm. I guess, and in terms of you know, putting this industry forward. God knows we need this industry to go forward. And God knows we don't want a typical uh, Hollywood type best picture like the trial of Chicago 7. I mean, we can't take sides at this point. Would you rather see a promising young woman and all its flaws win? Or would you rather see a trial of the Chicago 7? A thousand times. A thousand times I'd rather see this movie win. So I don't know if I said my grade B plus 89. It's on that top tier. That's a high B plus. Yeah, that's a super high grade for you too. Yeah, so it's it's right there. I don't know if it'll be my best of the year, but it's gonna be it's gonna be in my top ten, I think, at the end of the day. And uh, I'm really uh, really excited about its chances, Mike. We got a lot more movies to review, though. Yeah, we do. We got a lot more on the horizon, and we want to... I don't know that we're done talking about this one either in the upcoming months and uh, weeks, but certainly for as far as the upcoming days go, we want to hear from you, dear listener. What were your thoughts about Promising Young Woman? What Do you share similar highs and lows? Do you have any similar frustrations to either of us, and what did you grade it at? Let us know all of that, as well as any other comments, questions, concerns that you have about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us all of those on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we are available everywhere you hear podcasts including and especially the apple podcast app where if you would be so kind as to go on there and leave us a five-star review that would truly help out mike you teased it what is coming next from us in terms of reviews and movies we have to talk about and what are some words of wisdom to end on one night in miami news of the world these are two movies deserving of reviews one night in miami is something that we reviewed uh in the fall for 10 minutes in our film festival variety show mm-hmm. kind of a teaser non-spoiler review but that movie's you know definitely worth a full episode we want to attack that uh this week and we have news of the world that is actually going to be a combination episode i already recorded it is a mike mac and oscar episode <laughs> with colby mac and the combination is we're going to do a, a non-spoiler news of the world uh, review for a half hour and then the next half hour 35 minutes there's going to be a tom hanks top five with colby mac at colby told me everywhere so that'll be a fun episode to put out as well in terms of word words of wisdom you know i, I know we've said it a lot of times but there's there's a lot of 
lot of understanding around this issue that needs to be gained. Just as simple as that. And I think as as guys, even though I you know I don't recognize, thankfully, and I don't recognize that these guys really in this story, and and I'm 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 glad. But at the same time, they're out there. They're everywhere. Yeah. And we have to believe women, as you've always said, we have to uh, be better. And we have to support these women who have gone through this trauma. End of story. Yep. Full stop. Period. On the end of that sentence. Because this is just a systemic worldwide issue. And we didn't even mention, like, Carrie Mulligan and uh, Emerald Fresnel, they're British. And they're making an American movie. Yeah. But they're British. They, they, this is... You know, this has been commonplace in that society. Don't be a quote-unquote well. nice guy. If you see your friends being a quote-unquote nice guy, call well, them out on their bullshit. Don't enable. Don't provide an echo chamber. Don't provide excuses. Right? God. Take responsibility. That's why I didn't even bring this up, but one of the things the script did very well was just the lengths that these guys go to to make things not their fault and how willing they are to blame everyone. Chris Lowell's character specifically, you know, it's not my fault. Yeah. I wasn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, oh my as God. opposed Talk to just about mental gymnastics. Yeah. As opposed to just saying, yeah, I'm an ass. I fucked up. I was a dick. I was an asshole. I'm a criminal. Yeah. Well, once she unmasks them, then they show their true colors, killer or coward. Mm-hmm. And you see who's who. Oof. We'll be talking about this movie, that is for sure. Uh, it's going to be a big player, I think, uh, come awards season for in a couple categories. So we will keep on uh, having the discussion go forward. But I think those are wise words of wisdoms to end on. Words of wisdom? Words of wisdom, yes, to end on there. Uh, <laughs> We're talked out. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's also a <laughs> good one. This was a hard one, yeah. yeah. Uh, guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these movies with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make awards season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you very soon. See ya. See ya.